text of the sermon this morning is taken from Mark chapter 10. I have the privilege of preaching God's word to you from Mark 10, the verses 35 to 45. Let's read those verses together. Mark 10, starting at verse says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom the text. After the proclamation of God's word, let's sit together from hymn 49, verses 1 and 2. of the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a culture that celebrates greatness. If you ever watch the sports highlights, what it is, it's a series of clips, the greatest moves of the game that are put together. So if you open your newspapers to the business section, then you read about the greatest companies, or about the greatest investors. Or if you look at the entertainment section, it will tell you about the greatest singers or the greatest actors. The automobile section will tell you about the greatest cars. So wherever we go, whatever we do, we celebrate greatness. And that's not only true for people out there, it's also true for you and me. We all love greatness. We try to excel in the things that we do. Now in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to do your very best good at what you do. There are, in fact, many places in the scriptures where the Lord calls us to do exactly that. And on top of that, it's also good to notice and appreciate those who do well at what they do. Again, in his word, the Lord often does that. It's actually really striking 
one of the things that God mentions. He celebrates, for example, the beauty of Sarah, of Rebecca, and of Rachel. Or again, he celebrates the wealth of Abraham and of Job. He celebrates the strength and the military victories of David and his mighty men. He celebrates the splendor of Solomon and his kingdom. These men and women were all great in their own right. Instead of downplaying this, Scripture lifts this up and celebrates these things. Well, the question that becomes, what does it take to be great? Do you want to be great? If you want to be great, how do you go about doing that? And to this regard, the Lord offers a very different answer than what our world would answer. In our world, greatness is often seen in wealth or popularity, in success or in power. So we live in a world where people are encouraged to get rich. One of the real seductions of the internet is that it gives you the ability to become famous. You put together a nice YouTube clip and it goes viral and all of a sudden you become a sensation. Or again, people today value success or power. If you're the best in your field, if you become a leader in business or in politics, then you become famous. So what most people today strive for is that they wish to be wealthy or famous. They wish to be successful or powerful. And in his word, the Father tells us that true greatness consists in something very different. Greatness in the eyes of the Lord is often found in exactly the opposite things than what people call greatness. In a passage like James 1 verse 9, for example, the Lord says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. So God's saying here, wealth, wealth or riches don't make you, make you great in his eyes. Neither does strength or physical ability or fame or success. Psalm 147 verse 10, God tells us, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. And we see that borne out in the rest of the scriptures. The reason Abram was great because of his wealth, but because he was accepted as a man of faith. He was the father of all believers. And the real reason David was great is because he was the man whose heart was fully devoted to the Lord his God. And the real reason why Solomon was great is because he was a man who was committed to wisdom, to justice, and to righteousness. The Lord puts it this way in Jeremiah 9.23. He says, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Time and again, our Father shows us those who would share in his kingdom need to learn to look to this world with a godly perspective. And that's true not only of wealth, but 
wisdom, strength, also real power. Now this is a matter that Christ addresses here in our text. The situation in our text is that two of Christ's disciples, James and John, seek a special position of power and authority. They ask to be seated next to Jesus Christ as king of his heavenly throne. In his answer, our Savior still shows them they're completely mixed up in their aspirations. They thought that greatness could be found in fame and in power, but Christ shows us that in the kingdom of heaven, greatness comes through servants. So I preach God's word to you with that theme. The Lord teaches us that the way to greatness is through servants. We see in the first place, a misguided request, and secondly, a call to serve. starts off with this request by James and John. They ask the Lord Jesus, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. These men have it figured out. Jesus Christ is going to be king. And so they want to be right there with him when it happens that he's in his, on his throne in heaven. If you think about it, in one way you can understand this request. These men are the people who are closest to Jesus Christ. Mark tells us in two other places that there was this unique bond that existed between Jesus Christ and these three men, between Peter, James, and John. In a passage like Mark 5, 37, for example, we're told that these were the only ones who were invited into the house of Jairus as he witnessed Jesus raising his little daughter to life. Or in Mark 9, verse 2, we're told that they're the only ones who were invited onto the Mount of Transfiguration the only ones who saw him in all his heavenly glory. Then again, we're told they were the only ones who were invited to come with Jesus a little further into the Garden of Gethsemane and to pray with him. So there was a special bond between Jesus Christ and James and John. And it's probably on the basis of this bond that these men made this request. But what does Jesus say? He tells them, positions, power, and authority. Think about that. How often doesn't that same thing happen to us? We see someone in a position of leadership, and we think that person has it made. Or other times, it may seem to us that he has good ideas about what's best in a certain situation. And so we may wish to be in a position of leadership to exercise our ideas in that situation. Now, in truth, Sometimes we have no idea what we're getting into. We may not realize the hard work or the serious challenges that such a position brings along with it. And so our Savior is really upfront with this with these men when they ask this. He says, you don't know what you are asking. Could you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Christ is saying here, the only way that you can receive these positions of power and authority if you first share in my suffering, in my work. When he talks about this cup that he has to drink, he's referring here to the cup of God's wrath. In Mark 14, 36, this was the cup that he asked the Father to please take away from him if that were possible. If you go back to the Old Testament, in 
And he had a reason for that. Back in Psalm 75, we're told, this is the cup of foaming wine mixed with spices that God forces the wicked to drink. In Jeremiah 25, we're told that when God forces the nation to drink the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath, they will stagger, they will go mad, because the sword that God sends against them. Today, we ask that same question. Are you prepared to suffer for me? Can you endure the suffering that I am about to endure? That's the same question when he asks them, they will endure the baptism with which he is baptized in. Luke 12, 50, he told, us, he told his disciples that he had the baptism to undergo. And actually, if you just go to the verses earlier in our, text, in our text, in our passage, that the Lord Jesus spells out what that will look like. He told his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. We'll hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. It's the same as saying, I'm just about to undergo a very great suffering. He says, if you want to share in my glory, you first need to share in my suffering. And are you prepared to do that? In James and John, the whole qualm is about giving an answer. We can give an answer. Christianity is their passion and pride. They're ignorant. They have no idea about what they're asking for. Yet they say, sure, we can do that. It's kind of like Peter, a little while later. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. You know what our Savior says to them then? He says, all right. He says, you can ask have what you ask for. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Christ says to his disciples, if you're willing to suffer for me, then you will suffer. But you should know that it's not my position to give away those positions of honor and authority. They belong to those for whom they have been prepared. What God's saying here is be really careful what you ask for. The Lord may very well give you what you've asked for. But if you ask in ignorance, if you ask out of proud or out of selfish motives, you may receive something that you did not at all expect. expect. Scripture tells us that James and John indeed shared the cup that Christ had to drink. A good reading through the scriptures that in Acts 4, we're told that John was in prison because he was preaching the good news about Jesus. Or in Acts 5, we're told how the apostles were again in prison, this time also flogged because of their unwillingness to refrain from preaching the good news. Or in Acts 8 and 9, we're told how this great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. Acts 12 takes it a little further. There we're told that Herod arrested some of the apostles, and he also put James, the brother of John, to death with the sword. A good reading of the scriptures in Revelation 119, we're also told that John was exiled to the island of Patmos because of the word of God and his testimony of Jesus. So these men could share in the cup 
suffered persecution and imprisonment. He suffered flogging, exile, and death for the sake of their Savior. And then on another level, if you think about it, you see that Jesus Christ is also very good to them. And though they ask with all the wrong motives, our Savior still uses their request, his request, for their good. He allows them to share in his suffering. The reason that's a blessing is because he tells us elsewhere in the scriptures that insofar as we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. And James and John will indeed be richly blessed in the new heaven and earth because of their faithfulness while we were gone. At the same time, scripture tells us that there's no guarantee that they would receive the position and authority that we ask for. Those places of honor are reserved for those who truly care. That leads to the second point, the calling to serve. The other way that Christ uses request for their good is that he uses it as a teaching moment for all the disciples. Scripture says that when the rest of the disciples heard about this request, they became indignant. Actually, in the original language, it would say emphatically, the verb that's used here. It could translate it as they became very indignant or they became very upset. These men were really mad that James and John had the audacity to ask for such a thing. That shows us a little bit about what was going on in the hearts of the rest of the disciples. These men were actually no different from us. They were all busy serving their Savior. They had gone so far as to leave behind their families and their work in order to be able to follow Christ. At the same time, that doesn't mean they were always pure in their motives. We're told here that they're proud and selfish because they all want these positions of power and honor for themselves. Especially if you put this into the context of the previous chapter, we read together from Mark 9.33, there they had been arguing amongst themselves which of them was the greatest. What does our Savior do? Well, he uses this opportunity to extend his grace to them. He teaches them about what it really takes if you wish to be great in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. True greatness is not found in exercising authority over other people. It's often what we think. The guy in charge is the greatest. If you can pose your will on others, then you're the one who's the greatest in that moment. But Christ says that's not what it means to be great. If you want to be great, then you must serve others. If you wish to be first, then you must be slave of all. Now that may not seem to make any sense to you. How is a servant great? How is a slave first? If you're a servant, if you're a slave, You have to follow after other people. You have to do their bidding. You have to clean up their mess. You have to make their lives more comfortable. That's the whole point. 
as saying greatness is not found in exercising power. It's found in a heart that's willing to submit to God. It's found in those who are willing to pursue his values and priorities in life. You know what's wrong with wanting to lord it over others? Wanting to exercise authority over others? Paul points out in the passage we read together from from Philippians 2, that these desires often come from a sinful heart. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. How often is that true, brothers and sisters? If you want to exercise authority over another person, if you want to be the greatest in the moment, it's because of the selfish ambition. It's because of the vain conceit in your heart. You think you know what's best. And you think others should be willing to do whatever it takes to make your life easier or more comfortable. In contrast, God says you should look to the interests of others. Your attitude, he says, should be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ's greatness was exercised through his service. He was willing to become a human being. He was willing to lay aside his heavenly glory to come into this world like an ordinary human being. Not even ordinary, Scripture says that he was very plain. He had no comeliness, nothing to attract us to him. Maybe even ugliness. But he did this in order to be able to secure salvation for us. Not a hint of pride a hint of selfishness in our Savior's attitudes. Instead, there's this deep sense of being willing to sacrifice himself in order to serve the best interests of his people. That's actually the basis of our text in which God also calls us to serve. It says in verse 45 of our text, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. about that in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. And you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's the reality of life in this world. It's when you serve others, you make them rich. Even though it costs you, in the end, others are benefited by your faithful service. And that's really what's important to the Lord our God. We worship a God who cares deeply for others. We worship a God this morning who's willing to make great sacrifices to make sure that pays well for us. And he invites us to share in his character, brothers and sisters. The point that our Savior is making here in Mark 10 is that this is what it takes 
wish to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, you must be willing to accept this cost of discipleship. Instead of one being lorded over others, to death through selfish ambition, through pride in your heart, and instead to do those things that are truly upbuilding to the people around you? A great person is not someone who's most popular, not someone who's able to tell others what to do. But God says, you're a great child if you do kind things to your brothers and sisters. You're a great young person if you respect your classmates kind to those who have no friends. You're a great woman if you serve your husband, if you serve your children, doing all the mundane things in life, doing them with a spirit of joy and of zest. Brothers, you are great if you are faithful in doing your work, if you provide spiritual leadership in your family, if you serve your family, if you pray for those in need. These are the things that God says to be great in his eyes. side of the world on a mission trip. You don't need to own a business. You don't need to publish a book. You don't need to be the MVP of the grade. You don't need to graduate from the top of your class in order to be great. If you want to be great, God says, you serve the people that God has put in front of you, and you do that with a thankful spirit. So I encourage you to look around you, to ask yourself the question, who can I serve? I really love? How can I serve my husband or wife? How can I serve my children or my parents? How can I serve someone who's lonely or who's struggling in life? Are there skills or insights that God has given you that you can share with others? Is there anyone who you've become estranged from that you can serve them by humbly seeking them out and pursuing reconciliation with them? that you have to use your time, your money, your energy in serving those who are in need? The truth is that our Father gives us a lot of opportunities to serve others and be a truly great person. The scripture shows us that what's true here for every disciple is especially true for those who are being put into positions of leadership. Christ makes a statement, he's speaking in the first place to the elders, the apostles, the leaders of the church. True leadership for you, brothers, is not found in exercising authority, but it's found in serving the congregation in love. The Lord makes that explicit a little later in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So in a sense, positions of spiritual leadership are to exercise that, God says, 
faithful service to those who are under your care. That's the call for all of us in this room this afternoon. We have come up to the scriptures, but I need to thank you for the good news that God doesn't leave us on a road where we make that a reality in our lives. We've heard together that Jesus Christ lived this kind of life. More than anyone else, our Savior humbled himself to serve his people in love. God promises you that if you wish to be great, he will equip you to do that through the power of his Son. Time and again, when he calls us to service, you can know that whenever God calls you to do something, he will also answer your prayers if you ask him to enable you to do that. So you go to the Lord and you pray to him that you may serve him faithfully in the position of life to which he has placed you. And you may know that for Jesus' sake, will make that happen. The scripture demonstrates that very clearly to us in the lives of the apostles. The apostles went out to preach the good news and they faced stiff opposition and a lot of hardships. We talked about how they were beaten and flogged, how they were hated and imprisoned, how they were exiled and executed. The scripture also tells us how Christ strengthened them by his Holy Spirit so that they were willing to continue to serve his people by preaching the good news and by helping those in need. The point is that Christ has the power to equip us to be the kind of people he has called us to be. He delights to equip us to share in his character and his glory with our Father in heaven. You know what will happen if you devote your life kind of service God tells us if you do so that at the end of time he will exalt you in the highest place he says first will be last and the last will be first because Jesus Christ was given the name that is above every name because of his willingness to humble himself so deeply so God promises that all who are lowly in this world will be first yourself before God and serve your brothers and sisters in his love, God promises that he will bless you for all time and for eternity.